All right, what if there was someone who wanted to help you find a job? Choose Express Employment Professionals, and that is exactly what you're going to get. They can help you find work in any industry. With just one interview at Express, you have a connection to endless jobs. Whether you want a contract job, a new full-time role, or a summer job, choose Express Employment Professionals. Express has more than 860 locally owned locations and no fees for job seekers. Visit ExpressPros.com today to find a location near you. Summer is upon us, and whatever you have going on, a vacation, a staycation, a summer wedding, well, Macy's has you covered. If you need summer dresses, matching sets, volume sleeve tops, wedges, straw-crafted bags, I mean, really, they have what you need head to toe. I'm talking Levi's, Dolce Vita, Lacoste, and more. So shop summer must-haves at Macy's. Go to Macy's.com slash style. Again, that's Macy's.com slash ownyourstyle. Hey, it's Amy here to talk about St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. For 60 years, St. Jude doctors and researchers have helped push the overall childhood cancer survival rate from 20% to more than 80%. And we need your help getting that number to 100%. And most important, your support means that families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, or food. That peace of mind means so, so much for these families. So join me in helping St. Jude in this fight. Become a partner in hope at musicgives.org. That's musicgives.org. Something I for sure love having in my home is super clean countertops. And I love when it smells good too. So you can bring the vacation vibes to your home with coconut scented Clorox and Tiva. It smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy with a refreshing scent that'll transform your space into a tropical island retreat and give you a powerful clean. No plane ticket required. Unleash your self-expression with the enchanting coconut fragrance of Clorox Sentiva. You can get yours at a nearby retail store, also available in grapefruit or lavender scents. Life ain't always pretty, but hey, it's pretty beautiful thing. Laugh a little more thing. Tight, tighten up your core Said he can't. You're kicking it with four things. With Amy Brown. All right, we talk about therapy a lot here on the podcast, and I am pumped to say that I have a legit big time therapist who is an amazing author and podcast host of her own, Lori Gottlieb. She is here with us. Lori, I talk about you all the time, so my listeners know this is a really big deal to have you on. Well, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to cover vulnerability today, how change is hard. We'll talk a little wise compassion and kind of next steps for people if they are going through something. And then I would love to hear what you are grateful for. So we'll start with the the vulnerability first, though. And, you know, you even say at the beginning of your book, maybe you should talk to someone, that you're not just a therapist. You are a card-carrying member of the human race. So uh, why did you choose to share so much of your story in this book? You did it so well, by the way, and I love that it's intertwined with other people's stories, but why was it important that you as the therapist included your own therapy sessions as well? Yeah. So the book follows the lives of 
four very different patients, or they seem very different on the surface. And there's a fifth patient, and the fifth patient is me. And I included me for exactly that reason, because I felt like I didn't want to position myself as the expert up on high, because we're all in this thing called humanity together. And I was going through a struggle at the time, and I felt like it would be almost disingenuous to pretend like I have it all together, and I'm this wise person that knows better. And so I think that, in fact, therapists use their own humanity in the room all the time, not that we bring our lives into the therapy room, but that we know what it's like to be a person in the world. And that helps us to help people. And I think that one of the things that people take away from the book is just that we're all more the same than we are different. I think so many people feel alone in whatever they're dealing with. Like, I'm the only person dealing with this, or maybe there are other people dealing with it. But in my group of people, you know, they all have it together. And the reality is that everybody struggles, you can't get through life without going through something at some point or another. And it might be different from what somebody else experiences. But I think everybody can relate to the fact that life presents all kinds of bumps. Yeah, I feel as though the five different patients that you broke down, which you were one of them, and the different stories that they brought to the table, it just allowed me to just have so much more compassion for all humans. And you never know what someone is really going through because on the exterior, it might be presenting you know, one thing, but then if you had the opportunity to dig a little deeper and they were willing to go there with you, you might see, oh my gosh, like this person's hurting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you see that with the very first person that you meet in the book, who's this guy who we might just look at him and say, wow, he seems really narcissistic. He's really abrasive. He's really insulting. He thinks he's better than everybody else. And you you really don't like him at the beginning of the book. But as you get to know him, most readers say that he is the person that they love the most by the end of the book because you start to see what's behind this. And I think that when we can't speak something, when we can't share something or say something, we act it out through our behaviors. So often when we meet people and they present a certain way, you know, we think sometimes it's about us, the way that they're acting toward us. And often it's about them and something that that they're struggling with that they can't really articulate. So when it comes to your, back to your part of the story, were you afraid to be so vulnerable given that some of your patients might read it? Well, first of all, I should say that I think that the reason that I wanted to do the book through the stories of these patients was because every person can see themselves in every single one of those patients, even though you might feel like you have nothing in common on the surface with them. And I felt like including me just made me more accessible as a therapist for someone reading the book or for someone who just wants to learn something about themselves. So I thought that was really important. And I think also the other the other reality of it was that when I was writing the book, I was originally supposed to be writing a book about happiness. And I tell this story in the book and the happiness book was literally making me depressed. It was making me miserable because it felt like it was sort of scratching the surface of what I really wanted to say. I wanted to give people the privilege that I have, which is to see the human condition in all of its beauty and pain and joy and everything all mixed together. And I don't think a lot of people get to see that. I have this very rare vantage point given that I'm a therapist. And so when I decided not to write the happiness book and I decided to write this book where I could do what I wanted to do, everyone said, oh, no one's going to read that. 
And, and so I thought, okay, then I can just be, you know, just let it rip. I can just be really raw and authentic and tell my story. And then when I turned it into my publisher, they were like, I laughed, I cried, I saw myself in it, I gave it to three people. And I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe more people will read it. I had no idea that you know, the book, the book, you know, spent over a year on the New York Times bestseller list, it's being made into a television series, it's, you know, it's being very well read. And I think that the reason that it's resonating so widely is because I am so authentic, I am so, you know, I'm not holding back. I think I had this moment when I realized, oh, maybe more people will be reading this, that maybe I should sort of edit myself a little bit. But the whole point of it was not to edit myself. And I think that that's what people are responding to. What about the other four patients you included? Was it easy to get them on board or were you nervous to ask them like, hey, I'm, so I'm writing this book. Was it an automatic yes or did it take some time? I was very careful about the people that I asked. So there were some people where I felt like, oh, this is a story I really feel like would benefit a lot of people. But in one case, I didn't ask because I knew that that person often wanted to sort of people please. And I felt like she might say yes, even though she didn't really feel comfortable with it. So I didn't even ask. The people that I asked were people, first of all, that I wasn't currently seeing because it was really important to me to be able to separate the writing from the therapeutic work. And I didn't want to have any blurring of those boundaries. And they were all people that I, you know, I had lots of conversations with. It wasn't just like one conversation. And we talked a lot about what it would mean, what it would mean if their story was out there, what it would mean to have their story out there in a very public way, the the care that I would take to disguise their identities, which was obviously very important. So all of those things were worked out in advance. and, And I think that the stories that I tell are really resonating because I think these stories, even though they're very specific, feel very universal. Well, I, you touched on it for a second, but the TV show thing has got to be super exciting. Like, could you have imagined ever when you were writing it that it might turn into that? Because it, once readers will also find out in the book that you have had a career in, in television. And so now your therapy, which ended up being your calling, and then your writing, which is your other passion, is now meeting your former career. Yeah, I feel like all of the things that I've done when I worked in television and then, you know, when I worked as a writer and I still work as a writer and working as a therapist, I feel like they all have to do with story and the human condition just through a different lens. You know, I think also that that when we talk about the television series, therapy very organically lends itself to that medium because it's almost like when you have, you know, an episode of a TV show, that's like an, like a session of therapy. And so every week, you know, it's an ongoing thing that every week you come back and something new happens. And that's what happens on television, too. So I, I think they're very complementary in that way. And I think that one of the nice things is that in I think in the media, therapists have been portrayed as either the these blank slates, these kind of brick walls, they don't say much. They're not very interactive. That's not what therapy is at all. And you can see that in the book and you'll see that on the TV series. And the other kind of misconception that I think you get from therapists on television is they're like the hot mess, the train wreck, you know, the person who just doesn't have their life together at all. And they're just totally out of control. And that's not true either. And so what you see, and maybe you should talk to someone, is you see a normal person struggling with normal things. And I think that that's where the universality comes in, not one of those extremes. Do we need to dig deeper into why a TV show is making us feel so much when we know it's not real? Well, I think that's exactly it, that it made you feel. And I think it also, when when we have that emotional reaction, I think we feel seen. 
We feel understood. We feel heard. There was something in that where you said, oh, wow, that really touched me because there was something about it that, that I saw myself in, right? And so I think when you're watching a TV show or you're, you see a commercial or you read a book or whatever it is, and you see yourself in that, that is the greatest human desire. When I have couples come in, and I remember once I had this couple and one of the people said, you know, what are the three words that I really want to hear? And the person said, I love you. And the person said, the other person said, no, it's, I understand you more than I love you. We want to hear, I understand you. I see you. I hear you. I understand you. And I think we've, there's almost this epidemic of loneliness that I see, um, not just with people who come into therapy, but just in the world. And I mean, even pre-pandemic, where I think that what people really want is connection. And part of connection is, you know, do you see me? Second thing. People come to therapy to make changes in their life, but the fact is change is really, really hard, especially for some people. So why is it so hard for us to change when we know that changing would be good for us? People are so confused by this because they think I'm going to make a positive change and I know it's good for me. So why is it so hard for me to actually change or to maintain that change? And it has to do with the fact that that's why New Year's resolutions often don't last very long because partly when we change, change comes with loss even if it's a positive change. So what we're losing is we're losing the familiar. So even if you're in a bad relationship or you're in a situation that you don't like or you have a habit that is not serving you well, it's what you know. And so humans don't do well with uncertainty. And when we change, we are inherently going into uncertainty. We're doing something different. It's uncomfortable and there's a there's a learning curve and we're going to have to live in that in that place of this doesn't feel familiar. And and we're creatures of habit and so something that feels familiar often keeps calling back to us. And the other part of it is that there are stages of change. It's not just like you make a decision to change and then you change and the change lasts. It doesn't generally work that way. Normally, and I talk about, there's a chapter in maybe you should talk to someone called How Humans Change. And it goes through the stages of change. And it starts with pre-contemplation where you don't even know that you're thinking about changing to contemplation where you're sort of thinking about it to preparation where now you're ready to actually prepare to make the change and then action where you make the change and then maintenance, which is the hardest part, which is how do you maintain the change? And people think that if you make a change and you slip back, that you failed. And that's absolutely not true. It's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to eat healthier. And then you, you know, you slip up or whatever. People think, well, that didn't work, right? Or I'm going to break up with this person. And then you text them at three in the morning. Well, that failed. It didn't. It's that, you know, you're going to slip up. And then the question is, you know, just how do you get back on track the next day? And so I think people need to be kinder to themselves and have more compassion for themselves when they're making changes to realize how hard it is to actually do and be nicer to themselves about it. Yeah. And another thing that you wrote about was that there's no hierarchy of pain. And I think we often do that though. It's hard for us to do that. Like even me sometimes when I'm at therapy and I'm talking about something, then I'm like, I mean, but this really isn't that big of a deal compared to what this person is going through or these people are going through. And really that minimizes our feelings. But I know that this is very common. So can you just speak to that? 
Yeah, it's really interesting the way that we think about our emotional health compared to the way that we think about our physical health, even though our minds and our bodies are so intertwined. But if something happens to you, like you break your arm, you don't look at that hierarchy of pain. You don't say, well, someone else has stage four cancer, so I'm not going to go to the doctor and get a cast for my arm. You're still going to go. But with our emotional health, we say, yeah, you know, maybe I'm feeling anxious or I'm having trouble sleeping or I'm having this problem in my relationship, or I'm just feeling stuck. But it's not that bad, because I have a roof over my head and food on the table and compared to whatever you want to compare it to. It's not that bad. Then people say, you know, I can't really talk about this. But what happens is the feelings don't go away. So what we do is we pretend they're not there in order to cope with them. The feelings, you know, they need air. And so they come out in other ways. So they come out with too much food or not enough food. They come out with too much alcohol. They come out with a short temperedness. They come out with insomnia. They come out with that mindless scrolling through the internet or the, the shopping addiction or whatever it is. And, you know, we think that we're numbing our feelings, but numbness isn't the absence of feelings. Numbness is actually the sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings. And so it's really important for people not to have this hierarchy of pain to be able to say, you know what, whatever I'm experiencing is valid and I'm going to go reach out to someone and get help. Love that. All right. I want to tell you about something really awesome that Macy's is doing. It is currently Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, online and in-store. For the entire month of May, you can join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. Plus, you can help support college access and student success when you donate online or simply round up in-store to APIA scholars. Now, APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. And Macy's has made it super easy. You can just round up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support APIA Scholars, which is an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. Again, that's Macy's.com. You're going to be doing some shopping anyway. Why not round up and give back? That's Macy's.com or in-store. All right, so I've been saving on shopping this year by only buying new clothes when I've sold some clothes that I no longer wear. And what this has done is it's forced me to be super wise when I'm adding clothes back into my closet. I want to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and that's where Quince comes into play. You can go see for yourself all the awesome stuff they have, especially for summer right now, like European linen dresses and blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, 14-karat gold jewelry, so much more. And if you're like me, you're like, hmm, this just seems too good to be true. Well, what Quince does is they partner directly with top factories, and they cut out the cost of the middleman, and they pass the savings on to us. So we are getting things for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. For example, I'm literally looking on their website right now at this open knit cover-up maxi dress that'll be great for the summer, 100% organic cotton, and it's $49.90. It could retail for $148, so that's 66% savings. And with warm weather here, you need to check out Quince. All you got to do is go to quince.com slash Amy for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Amy. You're going to get free shipping. Again, 365 day returns. That's quince.com slash Amy. 
I don't want to waste my time taking vitamins that aren't really going to do much for me. Like I want research. I want to know like, hey, this is actually doing something for my body. And Ritual knows this. That's why they conducted the research. They've done clinical trials on their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin. The results, well, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. And as a woman, I want healthy vitamin D levels and omega-3 levels. And all I got to do is take my Ritual Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin every morning. I take them on an empty stomach, but sometimes if I forget, I may take them in the afternoon. It's really up to you when you want to take them. There's nine key nutrients in two delayed release capsules. And what the delay release capsules does for us is it optimizes our body's absorption of these nutrients. It's gentle on the empty stomach. Like I said, I can take it first thing in the morning and I'm totally fine. And with a minty essence in every bottle, it actually makes taking your vitamins enjoyable. No more shady business. Ritual is essential for women. 18 plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash four things. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash four things for 25% off. Hey, it's Amy here to talk about the incredible work being done by St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and ask you today to join me in becoming a partner in hope. When you make a donation to St. Jude, you're helping an organization that has helped push the overall childhood cancer survival rate from 20% to more than 80%. And I can tell you from personal experience, that number and the hope that it brings is invaluable. What they are doing at St. Jude is making a huge difference. It is full of joy there, which a lot of families need at that time. They don't need to be worrying about travel, lodging, food. Everything is paid for at St. Jude so that families can focus on their child that has cancer. Your support means families never receive a bill from St. Jude. It's only $19 a month. And when you sign up, you'll get the new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. Join me in helping St. Jude in the fight against childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope at musicgives.org. That's musicgives.org. Here we go. Break down the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Right. So idiot compassion is what we do with our friends, and it's not very helpful. So our friends will say, here's what happened, and let me tell you all about it. And they're really upset about it. And we say, yeah, you were right. The other person was wrong. You know, they're a jerk, and how dare they? And you're so wonderful. That's idiot compassion. It doesn't help the person to see the bigger picture, to see maybe what their role might be in the situation. And if you listen to your friends over time, they often, there's sort of a pattern, maybe different characters, but similar theme to what they're saying. Maybe they always feel victimized or maybe they do something that causes people to react to them in that way. It's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. Do you know those friends who like, they always have the same kind of, right? We all know those people. And sometimes we are those people. Yeah. And so that's idiot compassion is, is, you know, just completely standing, you know, just validating what your friend says without looking at it 
further and and it really kind of keeps them stuck. Wise compassion is what you get in therapy. A therapist will hold up a mirror to you and help you to see yourself in a way that maybe you haven't been willing or able to do. And so what that does is it helps you to get unstuck. It helps you to say, wait, why does this keep happening to me? Why am I having this kind of trouble in relationships, in my career, in my personal life, whatever it is? Why do I keep ending up in the same place over and over? And that's what's going to be really helpful. We all have blind spots and wise compassion can help you to see what those blind spots are. Now, you talk a lot in your book and in your TED Talk about how we are unreliable narrators of our own life. So what are some of the stories that we tell ourselves about our lives that get in our way? So we are unreliable narrators. And by that, I don't mean that we're purposely misleading. What I mean is that we're telling the stories that happen in our lives through our perspectives, through our own particular lens. And so often we're leaving out entire parts of the story. If you asked another person involved in the story to write their version of the story, it would probably be very different from yours, although there might be some overlap. So I think that it's it's really important that we consider the fact that what we're saying is just one version of a story. And, and usually we're stuck because we can't see other versions of the story. And that's where you come in with that mirror or a therapist and, and offers the wise compassion. Well, I think it's really interesting because when I see couples, I get to see both versions of a story and you learn so much about yourself through, um, you know, from hearing the other person's perspective. There's so much that we don't see just because we're only seeing it through our own our own viewpoint. And I feel like my writing background comes in really handily as a therapist, because I feel like what I'm doing in the therapist chair is really doing an editing job where I'm helping people to edit their stories. You know, is the protagonist moving forward or is the protagonist going in circles? Um, You asked, you know, what are some of the stories we get stuck in? A lot of them are stories we tell ourselves, like, I'm unlovable, or I can't trust anyone, or nothing will ever work out for me, or I'm better than someone, or I'm, or I'm not as good as someone else. You know, whatever the story is, we don't even realize that that story is impacting every choice, every decision that we make on a daily basis. And we don't even realize that those stories are running in the background. Just a quick thing for people that have the ongoing story, like what is something they can do to combat that? I think just being aware that that's happening, first of all, because some people don't even realize that that's happening. Um, And I think the other thing too, is just, I don't think people realize how self-critical they are. And that's part of their story. So whenever I, you know, I'm giving a talk and I say to people, who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Um, You know, show of hands, is it your partner? Is it your sibling? Is it your mother? Is it your best friend? Lots of hands. But the person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or useful. And so I had this one therapy client who, you know, was very unaware of how self-critical she was. And I said, I want you to go home and listen to how you talk to yourself and write down everything that you say to yourself over the course of a few days and come back and we'll talk about it. And she came back the next week and she started to, you know, she had written everything down and she started to read it. And she said, I can't even read this. I am such a bully to myself. And there were little things like she made a typo while, while she was writing an email and she said to herself, you're such an idiot. Right. You would I do that all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, she caught her reflection in a mirror and she said, oh, my God, you look terrible. Right. And she didn't look terrible. So just we are so unkind to ourselves and not only unkind, but it's just not true and it's just not useful. So I think the very first thing that we can do is to say, wait a minute, 
that voice has, you know, I, I need to change the radio station. That is not the radio station I need to be listening to. Well, just some theme. I work in radio, which is a male-dominated business. So I've been in radio for 15 years. And sometimes I have the imposter syndrome, you know, of like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Like there's other people in my company. I mean, I work for iHeart Media. There's like a, the tons of people that I look up to or that are higher up in my company, but a lot of them are men. Like they are. I, I have, you know, a few females on air that are older, wiser, but it's not, it's not that many at all. So it, I do suffer from that a little bit and other women may have that going on, but what do you, um, like, I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. I don't, does I, what am I, how, how am I on this stage right now? Surely they, uh, this is one thing I do in my head, like who turned this down and that allowed the door to open up for me. And not that that's bad. I mean, I, I want to take opportunities, but like what happened? Who got sick? Who couldn't come? Who had other commitments? Instead of just believing like, oh, maybe they they wanted me to host this. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so common. And and you're, you're telling such a story. You know, you've got this whole story going on in your head that, that I, I don't think, again, ki- is it kind? Is it true? Is it useful? I don't think it's true. It's certainly not kind. And I don't think it's useful. How does it help you? And so that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying examine these stories that we're telling ourselves. What is that voice saying? And why do we want that voice to live in our heads? If you, you would not choose that voice to be your partner right? If you're like, I'm choosing a partner, would you choose this really mean, critical, inaccurate person? No, you wouldn't. So why do you want to live with that person in your mind? So my, you know, it's really my, when you talk about, you know, what do I advise people on that? It's really about A, being aware of it, and then B, making a decision about, you know, who are you going to let in? Who who are you going to let into your home? And your home is, is your mind, your heart. You don't have to let that voice into your home. I do try to put that into action. So I, I do uh, encourage listeners to be that way and believe in themselves the most and be super confident before you have to go on stage or maybe give a presentation on Zoom or whatever your career is to like, you know, do a power pose in the mirror and own it. I also like to admit too that I I encourage that, but I'm never on a, a pedestal speaking it like down to people. This is how you have to be because I'm the same exact way. Like I'm more so saying it when I say it out loud here on the podcast, I'm reminding myself. So I appreciate you giving me that reminder too, or all of us. You know, when it comes to relationships, whether it's a significant other or maybe if it's even a working relationship, what do you think is the hardest thing uh, for people to do right? Is the is it the being, the seeing and the hearing? Well, certainly the perspective taking, but I think that people really struggle with how to listen. A lot of people don't know what listening means. So some people think that, you know, someone comes to you and the way to listen is to solve their problem or the way to listen is to, again, the idiot compassion or the way to listen is to come up with your counter, your retort, your counter argument in your mind so that you won't feel shame about what they're saying, right? People don't really know what it means to listen. And we don't even ask people what they need when they come to us. So sometimes when people come to us and they say, I really want to talk to you about this, one of your first questions might be, I'm available. How can I be helpful to you in this conversation? Do you just want to vent right now? Because maybe something just happened. Do you want to hug right now? Do you want to hear my honest thoughts about this? Do you want me to help you brainstorm solutions? What would be most helpful right now? 
And that is so reassuring to the person who's going to be heard because they can think for a minute. They can reflect and say, wait a minute, what do I want? Or they might say, I'm not sure yet. Let me just start talking and then I'll let you know. And what you can do as a listener is just say three words, tell me more. Those three words, tell me more. Because every time you say to someone, tell me more, you're allowing the other person to hear themselves, to get acquainted with what am I thinking? What am I feeling? Without all the noise from the outside. Because ultimately, I truly believe that we know what we want, but sometimes we can't hear ourselves. And so when you say, tell me more, you allow the other person to hear themselves. You know, you mentioned connection and how connection is so important. And what if someone kind of has some walls up for whatever reason? Do we just need to be patient with that? Like if you're, you want to hear more, because say you want to be a listener, but there's a wall there. Does the person that wants the connection just need to be patient? Or how do we earn that to where someone may be like, oh, okay, I can say more? Because we, we may be a messed up in the past, right? And, and we warrant the listener that we should have been. Is there any advice on how to undo that? Is it just to keep showing up? I think about that in terms of, you know, again, I, I now I have to see the show Parenthood, but in terms of parenting, because I think about how you want to make sure that your kids feel invited to come talk to you, but not forced to. And I think that you want to do that with everybody is you want to make sure that you're creating an invitation that feels welcoming, that feels safe, that feels trusting. And so if they have experience coming to you and they haven't felt like it was a good experience, they might not want to come to you again, right? So you may want to get curious about that last conversation we had, or, or is there something that's happened in the past between us where it's been hard for you to come and talk to me? And you can just ask that question because I want to learn. I want to make sure that you feel comfortable coming to talk to me if you want to. And there are other ways to issue invitations just by being a, 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 a trusting person around them where you're very open, you don't kind of intrude on boundaries. You know, they, they know that you're going to take care with something very vulnerable about that. And I, I'll give you an example where that, that hasn't worked really well to, so that people can understand how it can work better. When I see couples in therapy often, and this is just a kind of a stereotype, this happens a lot. If it's a heterosexual couple, the woman will say to the man, you know, I really want you to open up to me. I really want to feel closer to you. I feel like there's this distance between us. I wanna understand your inner life more. And so he starts to open up to her. And let's say he starts crying and let's say he starts crying a lot. She will inevitably look at me like a deer in headlights, like, oh my gosh, what do I do with this? You know, I didn't feel safe when he didn't open up to me because I felt this distance between us, but I don't feel safe when he, when he's like crying hysterically in front of me. Right. And so as a listener, you have to think about what kind of invitation are you issuing? Can the person really come to you with the truth of who they are? Or have you really given them some kind of indication that you can't really handle the truth of who they are? Different people want different things. So we assume that what we would want in that situation is what the person coming to us wants. And that's where people get into trouble. And that's why they get into fights. Because if you were going to your significant other with that problem, when you're listening, you're thinking, oh, this is what I would want. So this is what I'm going to give them. But maybe they want something different. Maybe you would want them to kind of help you brainstorm ideas on how to fix the situation. But what they really want is they want a hug, right? So you don't really know until you ask. So for those of us that may be looking to get into therapy for the first time or take the next step in our healing journey or 
allowing someone else in to what's really going on with our lives. Because, you know, again, yeah, talking to your friends may not be the best thing, depending on what kind of advice you're going to get. But what is something we can do right now to improve our emotional well-being to start on that path? Because for some people, therapy might be really daunting. It might not be accessible. It might not be something they can do. But do you have like a a first step for people that want to head in that direction, but maybe quite aren't there yet? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that I think talking to our friends is really important. Um, So despite the idiot compassion, uh, you know, caveat, I would say, I think what we really need more of is we need to connect more with one another, but connect more in an authentic way. And I think that that authenticity and that, and and choose your audience, choose your audience well, meaning choose, choose your friend that you're going to be vulnerable with. Make sure it's a person who, you know, you feel safe with. But I think that a lot of people don't feel like they can really, you know, they're not really connecting. I think so many people are lonely right now, even if they have lots of friends, they have lots of family, they have a partner, that they're not really connecting with those people in a way that is nourishing. So I really want to encourage people to make sure that they are um, nourishing those connections. And in terms of reaching out to a therapist, I feel like a lot of people don't reach out because they they have a lot of misconceptions about what therapy is. They think like they're going to go into therapy, they're going to talk about their childhood ad nauseum, and they're never going to leave, or they're going to go in every week and download the problem of the week and nothing's going to change. Most of the work of therapy happens outside the therapy room. You come and talk to a therapist And we always like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy. You can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So someone might say, well, now I understand why I get into that argument with my partner all the time. And I'll say, well, did you do something different? And they'll say, well, no. (laughs) And so, yes, it's important to understand the why, but you have to actually make changes. So therapy is very active. It requires that you're going to do a lot of work. It is not a place where someone's just going to say, yeah, that's so terrible. Um, But they're going to help you really understand what you can do right now to start making changes and improving your life. And so I think that, you know, for people who think, oh, what is therapy really going to do? I hope that my book helps them to see what therapy actually looks like and and what possibilities are. It will for sure. And I would encourage people to read it if they're considering therapy or maybe they're trying to have a better understanding of what therapy is all about for sure. Now, I just started with a brand new therapist that's all my own. I've got two adopted kids and a husband and we've been in various forms of therapy, you know, given they were older when we adopted them. So that's just part of like what we've been going through. And I just got a new therapist that's just for me. And I'm having a hard time with like what I'm, I just want her to like, tell me every, tell me what to do. Like I'm, I need to like breathe and stop. I mean, I'm patient. I don't say that out loud to her, but in my head, sometimes I'm like, can you just tell me what to do? Lots of people will actually ask that, right? So they'll come to therapy and like, just tell me what to do. I do that. And maybe you should talk to someone. I asked my own therapist. I'm like, what would you do? And he said, I only know what I would do, but I don't know what you should do. And Mm. I thought that was such a great response because we can't live somebody else's life for them, right? So what I would do might not be the right choice for you. And like I was saying earlier, I think we all ultimately have this sense of knowing inside of ourselves, but so much noise gets in the way that we can't hear ourselves. 
And so I think it's really important to learn to be able to hear yourself better. And that will help you to know what you should do. You know, I have a, I have a podcast called Dear Therapist, where it's actually an advice podcast. So people are asking, what should I do? And they write in a letter. And I have a co-host who's a psychologist uh, named Guy Winch. And we do a session with them. And you can hear that at the end, we give them I don't want to so much call it advice, but we give them a homework assignment and they have one week to try it out. And then they come back and tell us how it went. You know, did, did it work? Did it not work? What, you know, what can we all learn from that? And I, and what I love about that is first of all, it shows that even after one session, people can make really profound shifts in their lives, but it also shows that at, at the end of the day, people kind of, they, they do what we, you know, they do the homework assignment, but they make it their own because they knew what they needed to do. They just needed the guidance and the support. And so they go beyond what we've done so, so much of the time. And it works out so well for them. Yeah, I get my lashes done, which is about an hour every few weeks or so. And my lash person is my friend. Her name's Amy. Like we love to listen to podcasts together. And one that we've been listening to sometimes during our lash session is Dear Therapist. So uh, we enjoy the the unique format that, you you have them on and then you offer up your wisdom and advice and then you have them back on after for a follow-up. So I love that and think it's awesome and definitely recommend that people check out Dear Therapists. I recommend them checking out the book. Maybe you should talk to someone. And then your TED Talk was one of the top 10 most watched of the year. So there's lots of different places to find Lori. You also have a weekly advice column for the Atlantic's Weekly called Dear Therapists. So very busy all over the place. I would love to hear four things that you are currently thankful for right now. And if as a therapist too, even knowing just how important it is of recognizing things that you're thankful for, like, is this something you ever advise your patients to do or write, writing things down like as being therapeutic to recognize maybe the joys that are around them. Maybe even if it's like little teeny tiny small things, but those really could be big things. I love that you said that about the little teeny tiny things being big things because how do most of us wake up every day? Think about that. Well, we turn on our phones or we look at our phones, right? The first thing we do is we check our phones. And so already you're starting your day in kind of negative territory because you're seeing something in the news that maybe upset you, or you're getting all these emails and people need things from you. And already your stress levels go up, your heart rate goes up. And so you're already starting the day kind of, you know, not in the way that I think will help you have the resilience that you need to get through the day. So we want to start in positive territory. And I don't mean, you know, like being a Pollyanna. I think sometimes if we just take one minute when we wake up, instead of looking at our phones, the first thing, the first thing we do is we say, what am I grateful for? Just name one thing. And it could be, I'm so grateful that I'm going to go have this for breakfast. I'm so grateful that when I look out the window, look how beautiful that tree is. You know, I'm so grateful that these sheets, you know, that I slept on or, you know, like I got these new sheets or whatever it is. It could be the tiniest thing. 
but then you're starting in positive territory. So during the day, as things start to erode, you know, that, that positivity, like those emails or the news or whatever it is, you're not going to go below zero because you started above zero. Gratitude is so important. It's not this sort of like cheesy thing that some people, you know, some people really chafe at that when I talk about that in therapy. But I think it's so important to stop and say, what am I grateful for? It really changes your perspective. So what am I grateful for? Yes, I would, I would say, love to hear four things. <laughs> four things. First of all, I'm I'm so grateful for my son. He is just a real joy and very fun to be around. And I think one of the, I would say, I hate to use this term, but silver linings of the pandemic is that I, with remote school, I got to see more of him than I ever would have. And so I've been grateful for, for my time with him. Oh, I have to come up with three more. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm used to doing one a day for me. Um, I would say I am, I am grateful for my health. I am grateful for the fact that given everything that's going on, I've remained healthy and that um, all of the precautions have been totally worth it, not just for me, but for my family and for my community at large. Um, and I'm grateful for tagging onto that, um, how wonderful the community has been in terms of trying to just watch out for everyone and, and protect everyone. And then, you know, when we think about small things, I am grateful for the way my hair turned out today. <laughs> <laughs> it looks great, I must say. Seriously, like the, the bed head, I was like, this is working. So um, <laughs> I'm grateful for that. And little things like, you know, I'm writing a book right now, I'm writing this new book, and I, I am eating a lot of Trader Joe's um, like movie popcorn. If you haven't tried that, please do. It is amazing. I, I'm not getting paid for this, I swear. It is just something where like, I look forward to that. So it's like these little things from the big things like my son and my health to my hair and my and the popcorn that I'm eating that I think really can, can shift your mood in a very quick way especially during the day when you start to kind of lose perspective and you go into those, those little black holes that we tend to go into, step away from your screens, step outside for a minute, look at a tree, you know, breathe in the air, look at the sky and think about just something that you're grateful for. Well, this is the four things podcast. So that's why we do four things, but it, for the month of March, my listeners are doing a gratitude challenge. So the challenge is you know, every day might be daunting for some people, but just getting in the habit of hopefully doing four things every day, big or small. But for some people, if they're new, I love that, you know, you just said, just wake up, start on a positive note for one minute, focus on one thing that you're thankful for starting that day off on a positive note. So that's why I had you do four things. And I love that you gave us the Trader Joe's popcorn thing. I love when someone's gratitude gives us a new snack we need to try. I would just say one more thing on gratitude. You know, I think that the mood of a household is very contagious. And so if you start off your day and you have other people or a roommate or whoever is that you're living with, and you tell them what you're grateful for about them, it really changes the mood in the house, especially now a lot of people being in close quarters during the pandemic, but even afterward to say, I'm really grateful for your smile. I'm really grateful that you made me laugh yesterday. I'm really grateful for that, that hug that you gave me. I'm really grateful that you did the dishes last night. Yeah, I love that you're saying that because another thing we've been focusing on is ways to make somebody feel good 
or compliment them without talking about their appearance or looks. I feel like even though I do want to say your hair does look amazing, <laughs> but uh, especially with, we we cover a lot of body image. I host another podcast called Outweigh, which is the tagline is a life without disordered eating outweighs everything. And, you know, I think that sometimes speaking of, you never know what someone else is going through if you compliment, like, are you working out? Have you lost weight? Or you look so skinny. And I feel like that's stuff that society, it's acceptable to throw out. Oh my gosh, you look so skinny. You look great. What are you doing? Tell me every, tell me your plan, you know? And then that could be very harmful or damaging to someone when you don't know, are they sick? Do they have an eating disorder? Uh, Are they depressed? What could really be going on behind that weight loss to where you could be adding fuel to the fire if it is an eating disorder, or you could be adding shame if it's like they, they are sick and they don't want anybody to know. So anyway, I love that you can compliment or make someone feel good, whether it's your roommate, your coworker, your significant other, but making it about like, thank you for making me laugh or your laugh is contagious or you're so creative or I love the energy that I have when I'm around you. I think if you start the sentence with in your mind with, I appreciate about you, right? It, mm. it becomes not about those more superficial things. It becomes about something that really touched you or moved you. You know, when I, when I said, I appreciate, you know, I'm grateful for your smile. I mean, I appreciate your smile, meaning it, it moves me. It touches me, right? I appreciate that you gave me that hug. I appreciate that you made me laugh. I appreciate that you did the dishes that really, it made me feel loved or just, I appreciate about you. You know, again, like you said, your creativity, because I enjoy enjoy it. Oh, well, I appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate you for bringing these conversations that are much needed to so many people. Awesome. Well, thank you, Lori. And I hope you have a great day. And yeah, everybody check out Dear Therapists. For sure, you can listen on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. All summer, the best time of the year usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there was another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. At IKEA, everyone can have lounge chair access. No reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, they have all of the essentials that you need to soak up summer in style no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. All right, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can really make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through things. Now, BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp.com. Hey, it's Amy here to talk about St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. For 60 years, St. Jude doctors and researchers have helped push the overall childhood cancer survival rate from 20% to more than 80%. And we need your help getting that number to 100%. And most important, your support means that families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, or food. That peace of mind means so, so much for these families. So join me in helping St. Jude in this fight. Become a partner in hope at musicgives.org. That's musicgives.org. 
This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, well, just go to tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. 